good afternoon, everybody. Good morning or good evening, wherever you happen to be. Uh, welcome to the LSE and uh, welcome to this event hosted by the London School of Economics through its think tank and research centre on foreign policy, LSE Ideas. There's two big reasons why I'm so happy to be chairing this today. <laughs> Firstly, it's a very special lecture. It's our, what we call our Engelsberg Lecture Series, and this is the second in the series, funded uh, by Axon Johnson Foundation in Sweden, to whom we say a very, very big thank you indeed for supporting our work here in LSE ideas. Our first Engelsberg professor was Michael Burley, who spoke on populism and its discontents and its origins. And we've got a very different topic today, not on populism, but on empires. Possibly the two are connected. We shall wait and see. So that's the first reason I'm very happy to uh, be chairing this today, to just celebrate again the great contribution of Axon Johnson Foundation to supporting this excellent uh, Engelsberg lecture series. Uh, the second reason is who's doing the lecture? Um, my old friend, compañero, comrade in arms, uh, Oda Nivestad. Uh, Arnie and I have known each other for a very long time, going back, I think, to the late 1990s. And uh, Arnie came to the LSE in 98, stayed until 2015, before, as I said in one of my remarks, he got on a boat and went off to, uh, to Cambridge, in, uh, not, not up the river, uh, but across, across the Atlantic. I don't think Arnie needs very much introduction to, the, to you out there listening to what I'm sure is going to be a fantastic lecture. I got to know Arnie when we started talking about creating a Cold War Studies Centre at the LSE back in 2003. We met before, of course, through the Nobel Institute, of which Arnie was a big part back in Oslo. We put together an idea, which was the Cold War Studies Centre, in 2004. And four years later, it segued into something, another idea, ideas itself. My name, by the way, is Mick Cox. I worked with Arnie, of course, for many years. Arnie is not only a brilliant lecturer, but I, I would say, and I, I want to embarrass you, Arnie, I think one of the greatest Cold War historians uh, that we've ever known brings both a perspective from Europe, could I say also from Norway, but, but also very much rooted in archival work across the world, and not just in the, in the English language, but in many, many other languages as well, which gives your work, Arnie, and again, I'm embarrassing you badly, but I don't think you mind, I think it gives your work a, a textual richness and an international dimension, which has, I think, been very much absent from a large, at least a part of the Cold War historiography. Arnie has written widely on many things, the global Cold War, the book on third world interventions and the making of our times. He edited with the great Mel Leffler at the University of Virginia, the Cambridge history of the Cold War. He's written on China, restless empire, China and the world. He's the co-author with John Roberts on a penguin history of the world and many, many more books uh, beside on China and the international, on the international system. So Arnie, it's, it's fantastic 
to have you back here again at the LSE. And I even see that behind you, you have the old theatre at the LSE showing they're already applauding you even before you've given your lecture. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Arnie's theme in these lectures beginning today is a wonderful theme. Couldn't be better. Empire. What is it? Where do they come from? Why have they been so important? Why have they been so dominated? And I suppose when we get to the end of the lecture series, Arnie, you might also begin to tell us why most empires in history, maybe also including the American empire, inevitably decline. As our old friend Paul Kennedy put it, it's the rise and fall of great powers. You've got to look at the fall as much as the rise. But what you're going to do today, I think, looks so exciting. You're going to look in this first lecture on the concept of empire, a much disputed term, and resistance to empire, because part of the reason why they fall in the end isn't just for structural reasons, because of opposition to it. And you're going to put it as only you can in a long historical perspective. So, Arnie, with no further ado from me, your old friend Mick Cox here at the LSE, welcome back to the LSE, welcome back to LSE Ideas. There would be thunderous applause, but you can't hear it. But just think there is going to be thunderous applause. Arnie, we look forward to what you have to say. Over to you, my friend. Thank you very much, Mick. I must say, you can see I, I put the old theatre uh, <laughs> in the background here. And uh, what I've really been looking forward to is to do this lecture together with you, Mick. I, as you said, we created uh, LSE Ideas together many years ago. You've been one of the main influences on my own development as a, as a scholar. Uh, there will be a time coming when we will be back in the old theatre together again. Um, but for now, this afternoon virtually, and I'm looking forward to discussing this set of issues that I'll be dealing with today with you and with the other people who come to participate in the discussion. It is really wonderful to be back at LSE, even though it's for now only, only virtual. Um, so Mick has been instrumental, of course, and he's much too modest to say this, in, in creating this lecture series, just as he has with creating uh, LSE Ideas, now number one university-based think tank uh, in the world. Um, but I'd also like to thank, uh, as Mick did, the uh, Axon Johnson Foundation, which has funded this lecture series, and indeed my return, so far virtual, to, to LSE, by setting up the Engelsberg chair in, in LSE Ideas. And it's really wonderful to see institutions that are willing to do that sort of thing. Because particularly in British universities, really globally, particularly in Britain, uh, there is a great need for drawing on this fabulous international background that many uh, universities have by further accentuating the possibilities to get in lecturers from elsewhere, to get in people who can contribute to that very fruitful mix. And LSE, of course, is probably at the very forefront of those kinds of institutions, and it's wonderful that the Axel Johnson Foundation recognized that. So today we're going to talk about empire um, and the idea of empire, as, as Nick said. And I guess for some of you, at least, the first question that you have is why on earth uh, does an historian who's mainly dealt with the 20th century, or indeed mainly dealt with the history of the late 20th century during the Cold War, uh, gravitate towards looking at the origins of empire in a set of lectures, which I'll explain in a moment, 
that mainly deals with the 19th century in terms of the core of, of what we'll be dealing with um, for the next three seconds. So there are two main reasons, there are many reasons, but there are two main reasons. The first one is curiosity, which I think should be at the forefront of whatever a historian or a, or a scholar does. The need to dig deeper down, to try to find out some of the origins of our own time and how it has been set up, how it has been constructed. So that curiosity takes me back in time in terms of digging deeper. And then the second one is structure. So I've always been preoccupied with structure as an historian, but it's always difficult to figure out what is structure in history and what is agency. What kind of structures are we left with from the past? Where do the frameworks for our current world come from? Because that also helps us to think about how we can change them for the better. And that's one of the things that has been driving uh, a driving force for me as a scholar, not least in this wonderful time that I spent at LSC, is to try to better understand the past in order to help to change the present, uh, which, as you all know, is not in need of change. So those are the two reasons why I go back deeper and try to figure out more about where the structures come from that influence our world today. So then secondly, what we expect from these lectures. So there will be four lectures in all. Today, I will deal with ideas and concepts. Um, in the second one, I'll deal with a snapshot of empire around 1800. Um, in the third one, we'll move through the 19th century and up to empire around 1900, giving another snapshot showing what has changed during the 19th century, or possibly some people would say the long 19th century. Um, and then the fourth one, as Mick said, we deal with empire today, including the legacies of empire uh, that influence our world now. So that's a structure for the, for the lectures in terms of what you would expect. Today, I will just talk you through some of the ideas and the concepts that are there in order to better understand empire in its various uh, calibrations. Now, of course, as all of you will know, there are today, including in the UK, those who celebrate empire and those who deplore it, which I guess for the UK is better than ignoring it, particularly ignoring Britain's own imperial heritage, which has been very much the standard up to, up to quite recently. So my own children who grew up mostly in this country, in the UK, probably learned more about Hitler and the German National Socialist at school than they ever did about the British Empire. So in many ways, I welcome uh, that debate that we now have about empire and empire in the past and empire in the present. And although my own political and scholarly sympathies are entirely with the critics of empire, these lectures are not going to be exercises in condemnation. Uh, I think, uh, or at least I hope rather, uh, that there will be attempts at getting to grips with how empire has created the present world uh, and the structures that we still live under. Even so, I think it would be wrong to start a lecture series like this without noting the terrible consequences that empire had for those conquered and subjugated. Um, and in some cases, also for those who were the enforcers of empire. Today on, on, on Armistice Day, uh, I will be thinking about those many lads from 
farming background or a working class background uh, who were sent out by various empires to do the dirty work uh, in various parts of the globe, not just from Britain, of course, although it's particularly visible there because of its closeness in time, but from all empires. Uh, those who manned and staffed um, the commanding post of empire often against ideas and, and ideals that they themselves had. Um, one way you could get closer to this is actually by reading the work of Rudyard Kipling. So Kipling was, a, as it's worst, a racist and misogynist bastard. But at his best, he was one of those who really understood the kind of predicament that many people who were sent out from Britain to serve in the empire um, lived under and how their ideals sometimes were closer to the people that were sent out to fight than what it was to their own masters at home. So it's important to note that side of, of empire as well. Though it's most important of all to remember the, the victims. And I was thinking a little bit before I set this up, uh, like in a lecture on the Holocaust and a lecture on, on China's great famine in the, in the 1950s, to start with a minute silence, for those who've died as a direct consequence of imperial expansion. But I decided not. Um, it's theatrical, um, and I'm not particularly good at those sorts of things. But more importantly, it's also disrespectful, I think, to the anti-imperial causes for which so many of them fought and died. We will get back to the issue of memorialization in the final lecture. But today, I think it's better that we spend our time uh, honoring the victims by trying to understand the causes of imperialism and of anti-imperial resistance. So that's what we will proceed to do over the next 45 minutes or so. It won't surprise any of you that I'll start with definitions. Um, and that's important when it comes to empires, because there are so many different types of empire that have emerged over um, the course of, of human existence. Empire in itself is a very complex term. Uh, it's probably been around in an etymological sense um, in the Middle East and in Europe for at least 2,000 years, the idea of imperium going back to, to the Romans. But the form of state that the term describes has existed for even longer, um, probably since the Middle Eastern Akkadian Empire around 2300 before the Christian era. The Akkadian rulers, by the way, referred to their state as beluta, meaning rule, uh, dominion, possession, control. And they incorporated into it the basic building blocks of any empire that we're going to come back to over and over again in this series. Central authority and a systematic form of thinking to regulate the relationship between center and peripheries. They also had, the Akkadians also had most of the imperial apparatuses, uh, cultural predominance, subject kings among them. Uh, these latter, it seems to me, are less important in generic constituent terms. Um, empires in history come in all forms and sizes, and there are many differences among them including in degrees of cultural imperialism and levels of political subordination. So let us talk a little bit about some of these differences. One important one is that um, some empires colonize 
they settle territory with their own people, while others do not. So England settled its own people in Ireland, for instance, forever changing the population character of that neighboring country. France attempted to do the same in Algeria. Um, one of the big question marks, I think, in the history of empires is why we saw so little of that outside of Chinese empire's borders. We saw a lot of it in terms of the expansion of the Chinese empire, which I'll return to. But if you think about Korea, for instance, that could easily be in a similar situation to China, than Ireland was to Britain or Algeria was to France. Uh, the only real attempt at colonial settlement in Korea was not by China, even though China was the imperial sovereign for almost a thousand years, but by Japan during the relatively brief period uh, of its occupation there in the first half of the 20th century, when I think more than a million Japanese settled on Korean territory. So in spite of these vast differences among empire, it still makes sense, at least to me, to speak in general terms of an Eastern and a Western archetype of empire. And these two imperial models would be the Qin Han Empire in China um, and the Alexandrine Roman Empire in the Middle East and Europe, which existed roughly at the same time 2000 years ago. Um, there are similarities between the two, but also strong differences. So in terms of similarities, both centered on the person of the emperor, um, each expanded in short bursts, followed by institutionalized empire that lasted for a very, very long time. Both were highly militarized and centered on legal systems of universal application. So that universalism is something that I'm going to come back to in talking about empire in all of the four lectures. But the empire, the, the, the differences between empires are, are equally obvious, including between these two archetypes. So the Han in China were much more ideologically oriented than the Romans, it seems to me. The, the Han emperors were significantly more preoccupied with imperial integration. They were more preoccupied with population settlement from the center within the empire. Both of them defined a core imperial idea um, that uh, they should set up an imperial area that future aspirants to predominance within each region would aspire to control, along, of course, with an enduring written language. Remnants of some of this are with us today in Europe and, of course, in, in East Asia through, through Chinese in a, in a fully-fledged form. But only the Han Empire, it seems to me, left a geopolitical imprint and a language that serves the state today in China. Um, so I do think it's important to be aware of these two archetypes. So the, the, the Eastern Asian model and the European-centered model, and to think about similarities and differences as we go forward. That's not to say that there aren't other models of empire and different kinds of empire, including in the Americas, for instance, before... Uh, the Colombian era, uh, in Africa, in the Middle East, in South Asia, yeah, and elsewhere. We're going to touch on all of those, but I still think thinking through empire with regard to those two archetypes may make sense. There is an argument put forward, of course, that concepts of empire, East and West, are so different that we should use different terms. 
that using the European-centric idea of empire is not smart when we're dealing with East Asia. Uh, why not call it Daguo, uh, as the Chinese would, great state, um, instead, of, instead of empire? I find this difficult um, because I'm not so sure it contributes much to the overall discussion, uh, particularly in terms of the similarities between the two archetypes. There's also an apologist aspect to this, not least with regard to present-day Chinese nationalism, which wants to say that China was very different. Uh, this was about uh, nation, nation building rather than empire. We'll get back to some of those issues a little bit later on. Um, but first and foremost, it's unnecessarily confusing. Why use two terms for phenomena that have so much in common? I think the um, point about um, critiquing the empire-nation-state divide in a general sense has much more to be said for it as a, as a line of inquiry. Um, and of course, at LSE, um, uh, Lee Jenko over in the government department has written very insightful about this um, recently. Um, and I think that's an important issue. As I said, we, we will, we will uh, get back to that later on in terms of the um, in terms of the discussion. Let me spend a little bit of time here trying to define, um, since we're going to use it in, in a way as a, as a segment of the discussion, how we should think about nations and nationalism. So uh, a much used definition of nation is, of course, that it consists of a large body of people united by common descent, history, culture, language, inhibiting a particular state or, or territory. And the key aspects here for nation, in contrast to empire, um, is on having something in common or on co-location. It's very hard to imagine a nation that does not at least have one of the above myths uh, in common. Um, likewise, it's difficult to think of a nation, in contrast to empire, at least up to the cyber age we've entered into now, that does not share some form of territory. There have, of course, been constant attempts at making religion or physiognomy into forms of nation, but these have always been heavily contested for very, very good reasons. I mean, for most people, there seem to be more to nationhood than saints and looks. Um, so the, the, the romantic view of nation, um, as contrasted to empire, is something that, uh, that Ernst Renan summed up back in 1882. Renan said that, I quote, a nation is a soul, a spiritual principle. Two things which in truth are but one constitute this soul or spiritual principle. One lies in the past, one in the present. One is the possession in common of a rich legacy of memories. The other is present-day consent, the desire to live together the will to perpetuate the value of heritage, and so on and so forth. But there is also another 19th century European view of the nation, which brings it much closer to both contemporary and past forms of empire. So in France, where the revolutionary concept of an all-encompassing democratic nation was pioneered, Napoleon quickly transformed the revolutionary state into an empire which throughout the century competed with other European empires, some of which were increasingly democratic and based on a national idea, Britain, Germany, Italy. 
So it's worthwhile asking, as the Trinidadian sociologist Krishnan Kumar does, and I quote him, is imperialism simply nationalism under another name? Or nationalism no more than a continuation, again under another name, of the imperial impulse that preceded the rise of nationalist ideologies? Um, the great French historian Eugène Weber, uh, of course, reminds us, and I quote him, uh, the famous hexagon, meaning today's France, can itself be seen as a colonial empire shaped over the centuries. And my colleague at Harvard, uh, Charles Mayer, reminds us in one of his recent books, quote, we are not all nations empire once. And it's important to take that into consideration. I think particularly when we're discussing this at LSE, uh, where the critical study of nations and nationalism has been developed from Ernst Gellner to Anthony Smith to today John Broly and, and John Hutchinson and, and, and others. Uh, it's an important part of the discussion about empire, which I hope we'll have a chance to come back to. And it is crucial to me um, that nation states, or what imagines itself as nation states, can be at least as violent as empires in terms of how they entrench their power uh, and force it on to unwilling populations. Let's then cross over to look at imperialisms and, and process a little bit here so that we don't all drown in, in structure. So imperialism is about how empires become empires. What is it that drives that process over time? And of course, there are many traditions uh, in terms of interpreting this. The one that I, in many ways, grew up with intellectually, scholarly, uh, is the Marxist interpretation of imperialism. Um, a strict materialist interpretation based to some extent on Karl Marx, but even more so on, on Hobson and, and Lenin. Uh, I think overall, if you look at that as a singular approach, meaning the only approach in this context to understanding imperialism, at least to me, that is a stage long gone. It has contributed very significantly to our understanding of empire, uh, but it would be wrong to postulate the materialist interpretation as being the only one. Um, I do think it has two important aspects to it that can be understood probably better through Marxist theory than through any other uh, form of investigation. One is the imperial emphasis on resources and manpower, which are going to follow us again through all these lectures, particularly uh, the one uh, that comes up next, dealing with 1800 as a focus point. And then, of course, the really important discussion, which we'll spend quite a bit of time discussing, the relationship between empire and capitalism. And how, at least when we get into the 18th century, early 19th century, in many settings, these become twins. The idea that there is a built-in contradiction, which many people have postulated over time between empire and capitalism, between empire and markets, I think is untrue. And I think it's very important to look at capitalism as both a regional and a global system in order to understand how empire uh, has developed. But equally important to the materialist interpretations and the materialist aspects of empire are imperial ideologies. So what has motivated 
empire, what has driven people, including some of these poor people who otherwise had no interest in empire, to participate in very bloody overseas imperial ventures. And of course, imperial ideologies come in different forms, and we'll explore some of these as we go through these lectures. Um, religion has traditionally been tremendously important in terms of imperial ideologies, perhaps I would argue more important than any other aspect of empire building. It provides the kind of justification, the kind of certainty that is necessary when you engage in activities and structures that on the ground often seems entirely meaningless because they go against the wisdom that people who live in these areas have accumulated over generations and centuries. But religion can be a very strong motivating force to suspend all of that and push forward with what seems in your religious conviction to be right to you. Closely connected to religion, but not necessarily overlapping, is the issue of race. So racial concepts, um, racial privileges, um, racial ideas, positive, negative, have played a tremendously important role in the building of empires. If I were to say what we have missed the most, and by we I mean sort of historians in a broader sense, the big we, um, in terms of interpreting imperialism, it is the, the, the uh, importance of race and racial thinking, racial ideologies, and how they have developed over time, which of course are also closely connected to ideas of civilization. Sometimes these are so close that they're almost identical, and I point out some of the uh, settings in which that is true, particularly in the 19th century. So these are important imperial ideologies, religion, race, civilization. But there is also one that, uh, at least for the most part, um, we seem to have left behind today, different from the ones that I just talked about, and that's the ideology of conquest, which was tremendously important in imperial expansion right up to the middle part of the 20th century. The idea that you conquered foreign territory because, because you could, that the process of conquest, the triumph of conquest, in itself gave justification to the imperial venture. Uh, and this is something that is important when we go back in time. It is also important for the 19th century, as we shall see, and even into the early 20th century. And then finally, with regard to imperial ideologies, we have the idea, uh, which sometimes is summed up uh, as empires of peace. The idea that the imperial forces and the imperial administrations are there as peacekeepers, as stabilizers in a, in a violent world. Uh, and I think some of that is still with us today. The idea that somehow the West, in whatever incarnation it has, is better positioned, better placed to keep the peace to tell everyone else how they should behave than what local people are themselves. That comes directly out of the idea of empires of peace in the 19th century. As I have argued elsewhere, and Mick alluded to this when we started out this afternoon, um, how the Cold War in many aspects, the United States and the Soviet Union, were continuations of the imperial experience, the Western imperial experience of the 19th and early 20th century. So, so much for imperial ideologies and their overall significance. 
what then about imperial institutions? Now, there's no doubt that these are important and they're worthy of further study, but my sense is that we have come further in terms of looking at some of these than what we have with at least many of the ideologies that I just listed. Uh, there are voluminous uh, histories of empire of various sorts that are predominantly institutional. Um, the Oxford history of the British Empire, which has many wonderful volumes, is predominantly institutional. It looks at how uh, the British Empire was built as an institution-building enterprise. And it's important to understand those aspects, but we shouldn't, in my view, let them take over for everything else. And we should be broader. We should be more comprehensive in terms of our approach to the study of imperial institutions. And let me explain what I mean by that. So one of the institutions that we today do not spend all that much time on studying might actually, in the history of empire, be the most significant of all, namely monarchy. The idea of kings and sometimes queens that define the empire, that an empire is based mainly on allegiance, allegiance to the imperial person, rather than on territory and borders. And if we look at uh, empires in Asia, uh, if we look at empires simply Colombian uh, Americas, if we look at some empires in, in Africa, uh, if you look at the Russian empire, uh, that's definitely true. Um, as our friend and, and colleague uh, Dominic Lieben has shown in the case of Russia, this is very much about monarchy. It's about the imperial family. It's about the centrality of that as a symbol of the state. It's the core of the state. Sometimes even substituting for religion or race or civilization in terms of the argument put forward. There are limits as we are going to see, to the idea of monarchy carrying the imperial way forward. Because the problem is, of course, that it then depends very much on the person of the monarch, the, the king or the emperor. And if it turns out that that person, he or she, are not quite suited for the job, uh, as has happened fairly frequently, then, of course, the whole imperial uh, constitution might be in trouble. The whole imperial setup in terms of how it is constructed might be in trouble because of that one person's unfitness for the office he or she would bear. Then secondly, in terms of imperial institutions, um, again, worthy of particular note on, on Armistice Day, um, is, the, is the military in its various uh, forms. So the integration of imperial military operations and deployments is something that, again, is going to follow us throughout these lectures for two reasons. First one is that it's incredibly hard to do. I mean, organizing military activities across a vast empire, in many cases, not a contiguous empire, um, an empire overseas, an empire that is connected through maritime ventures alone, is incredibly difficult. And it's uh, part of the success of empire is that in many cases, these processes have succeeded for a very long time. It of course has to do with technology differentials. Uh, it has to do with time. We'll talk more about that later on. 
but that coordination aspect of military imperial institutions is very significant. And then secondly, with regard to the military, there is, of course, the raw use of force. The idea that the imperial army and navy and in the 20th century air force was so powerful that no opposition would be possible. So that concept of the military as an imperial institution is also very significant. So gradually that started being hollowed out. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about that from the 19th century on. Um, but it's an important aspect of the military institution as intended. We could also, especially at the LSE, which was set up as an institution for imperial administ administration training, we could talk about administrations, we could talk about the development of administrations, I'll get back to that in, 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 in the second and third lecture especially, and of course education, which is an integral part of this. Uh, it was not only the LSE that was in reality set up as a training school for imperial officials, you find that all over the various empires that we'll be looking at from, from the very outset, from the very beginning of the imperial experience, if the empire could not train men and women to serve it, both within the imperial centers and then gradually overseas as well, or in the, in, in, in the colonized areas, then it would be very, very difficult for empires to be successful. So the emphasis on knowledge, the emphasis on education is tremendously important in all of this. If we step away a little bit from the idea of, of ideologies and institutions. There are some other aspects that I'll just mention now, and then we will come back to them in more detail when we look at our snapshots of empire. One is the concept of law, an imperial law, the empire as lawgiver, the, em the empire as coordinator of law uh, within empires, but also among empires which is particularly important for the 19th century. And my uh, colleague, my new colleague here at Yale, uh, Lauren Benton, is one of those who written most insightfully about the relationship between law, what became international law, and empire. Uh, how almost everything that we think of today as international law has some kind of imperial background. The concept of citizenship the contested concept of citizenship, going back to what I said about the, the discussions of definitions between empire and nation state, is also something that is really significant in this broader setting. And again, I would recommend um, the, the work of my friend and colleague Fred Cooper at NYU, who's worked a great deal on this with regard to particularly citizenship as, as um connects with the French Empire, but also in a recent book in a, in a broader sense, looking at why ideas, notions of citizenship are so uh, contested in an imperial sense. I mean, some of this almost goes without saying. It's very difficult to feel that you've been conquered and then given the opportunity, at least in a small minority sense, of becoming citizens of the empire that's conquered you at the same time. But there are other aspects of identity that also go into this that is well worth discussing. Fred and I do not agree on all of this, but I, I do think it is very important to take his work as a starting point for these discussions. And then finally, the big economic issue that we sometimes do not deal with enough, and that's the issue of taxation. Um, successful empires 
are, surprise, surprise, the ones that tax you the best from their perspective. And on this, there are very big differences uh, among empires, direct and indirect taxes, and not least in terms of monetary systems and how these have developed over time. There are also time periods that are more important than others. If you look at the whole set of issues with regard to empire overall. And I want to spend a little bit of time dealing with those today because they mainly predate um, the time period that I'll pick up on in the next lecture, namely the world anno 1800. So one of these uh, points of fundamental change in terms of ideas of empire, of course, is the one that I've already pointed out with the Han Empire and the Roman Empire around 2000 years ago. Uh, the world looked very different after those two empires uh, than what it did before them. It's also quite possible to argue that the Mongol Empire or empires um, of the uh, 13th and 14th centuries are essential in order to understand how concepts of empire spread. Uh, and I agree with that. I think it is important to look at some of the emerging history that we now have of the Mongols, of the institutions that they left behind um, across Eurasia, um, far into Europe, uh, all through Russia, all through the Middle East, uh, South Asia, uh, Eastern Asia. Um, and I would agree with my, um, my, my colleagues who've been working on this that we haven't paid enough um, attention to the significance of the Mongol conquests and the, especially institutional terms, uh, what they left behind. But the fundamental change that probably most immediately predates the one that I will be looking at in the next lecture, this will please my early modern colleagues at LSE, are the changes of the 16th century. Um, the European civil wars, the um, conquest, these parts of the Americas, the tremendous changes in technologies and resources that starts in the 16th century in, in Europe, but also in other parts of the world, which we'll hear more about later. And the ideas about global settlement, um, maritime-based global settle settlement in a European sense that also come out of the 16th century. So the 16th century, with regard to Europe, but also with regard to the world at large, is a crucial time period for imperial transformation. Look at China, the Ming-Qing transition, look at South Asia, look at Russia. So sometimes when you study something as complex as, as empires, uh, having as a starting point uh, how uh, there are periods of very narrow focus in which things change rather fundamentally is a good idea. I mean, this is one of the things that I try to do when I teach these matters, both here at Yale and when I was up at, at Harvard and at, at LNC, um, is to look at these, these fulcrums, these, these time periods in which things change rather dramatically. I also think there are some particular issues coming out of the 16th century and the early 17th century that we should bear in mind for the rest of our story as we're gonna tell it here. One is the emphasis on companies 
like the East Asian companies, the, the West Indian companies, East Indian companies, um, that are not imperial formations in themselves, but are setting up trading communities that are going to feed directly into empire. And I think it's important to bear that in mind, not least when we want to construct at least parts of this as part of the history of capitalism. It is important to try to understand how these trading institutions that were uh, symbiotic in many ways to empires, uh, some parts, sometimes part of them, other times not, came to feed into the transformation of empire that we've seen over the, over the past 300 years or so. Um, I think another aspect of the same issue is the emphasis that we will see going forward on maritime empires. So we sometimes tend to overestimate this. So since Britain um, and France, uh, Portugal, Spain, the European-centered, late European-centered empires, the Dutch, uh, the maritime empires first and foremost, we're sort of thinking, well, that is the overall archetype of empire when we go forward to the 18th or even the 19th century, which I don't think is true. You know, the, the Qing Empire, the Mughal Empire in, 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 in India, um, uh, the Russian Empire, many of these that are not uh, maritime-based are still very significant. But it is important to look at maritime empires in terms of how they were able to project power overseas, because that, in a way, became the European difference in terms of how empires spread. Um, and it contributed, I think, to the, to the enormous degree of violence that you find in terms of the spread of Western empire through, throughout the 19th century. Um, another aspect of the uh, predefined uh, definitions that we are, are dealing with here before we get up to the 19th century um, is, of course, what happens beyond the human realm in terms of the development of empire, which you could see as centering on genes, human and, and non-human genetics. So the spread of people, the spread of animals, the spread of illnesses. And again, it's the 16th and early 17th century that is the starting point for much of this, even though it has a much deeper history, of course. Uh, if you look at the Mongols as part of this genetic spread um, throughout the world, then of course that is very significant indeed. I think one has to be careful here, because those who over-focus on empire with regard to genetic changes on a, on a, on a global, global scale, on medical uh, changes, changes in people's livelihood, sometimes forget that the interaction between various parts of the world in these terms is much deeper than just concepts of empire and probably goes further back in time, right to the time when humanity started to spread to all continents. But it is still correct, I think, as many historians have done, to look at the specific changes that happens when these interactions and this spreading actually speeds up uh, and becomes much more predominant as a thread in human history uh, in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And the same, just to go back to that for a moment, with the spread of ideas and the spread of technologies, or indeed the spread of religion. Um, uh, the spread of religion 
of course, also predates the modern empires, goes back to the great religions, to Buddhism, to Christianity, to Islam. As I said before, these are drivers of the spread of, of empire. But also, if we think about the early directions with regard to religions as part of the spread of ideas, what later would have been seen as much more ethnocentric religions, such as Hinduism or Judaism, were much more widespread in, in the first millennium um, of the Christian era uh, in terms of various people who linked up to these ideas and concepts in terms of religious revelation. So again, we have to think about the timing of some of this in order to get our story right or to have the right kind of background to discuss the impact of empire on today's world. Let me then, in conclusion, move over to the, the crucial issue, at least to me, of resistance against empire. And of course, the resistance against empire is as old as the empires themselves. We sometimes miss it because we tend to overstudy empire's ability to control and to order things and understudy resistance against empires. Uh, resistance in the periphery and resistance at the center. Of course, one reason why we do that, and I count myself among those who've been guilty of this more than once, is that archives are of course much more abundant in order to study the empires themselves than to study the resistance against empires. Uh, as we see, not least recently in, in the UK, uh, archives that could document anti-colonial resistance has been deliberately destroyed or weeded out of the archival record by the imperial authorities themselves. But it's not just about archives, it's also about where centers of learning are located, which is predominantly in the north and predominantly within countries that have an imperial background themselves. I think the study of resistance against empire would look very different if we had stronger academic institutions in countries and regions that suffered from imperial occupation, and in some cases imperial genocides, than if they were only located in, in the north. But then, let me make three points about resistance of empire that, uh, against empire that's going to follow us through these lectures. The first one is that anti-imperial resistance, anti-colonial attitudes, were much more widespread than what has generally been assumed. And they started earlier. The resistance against empire is visible from the very beginning of processes of imperial domination and colonization, leading to the point that has been made by many scholars recently, that empires are very rarely stable. So empires want you to believe that they are entirely stable uh, institutions and entities that are going to last forever. Usually they're not. They are very unstable, some of them domestically, but certainly you know, most of them internationally, overseas, for reasons that we will return to in uh, the next two lectures especially. So get rid of this idea of empires representing stability. Empires are in some cases agents of chaos. Uh, and they, the chaos that they produce have negative effects for themselves over time. And secondly, in terms of resistance, uh, the way anti-imperial ideas spread. So very from the very moment of imperial occupation, 
anti-imperial ideas start to spread uh, among the colonized population, but also among some of the colonizers themselves. Um, and we see significant consequences of that, not least in the 19th century, which I will talk more about um, in the second lecture. And then thirdly, alternatives to empire. So empires want you to believe, just like nation states do, that there is no alternative to themselves. They are the only meaningful, sensible form of human organization on a grand scale. Um, of course, if you look at this historically, it is entirely untrue. Uh, even before the 18th century, mainly European ideas about nations start to break through, there were alternatives to empire that were pre presented by indigenous people themselves across the globe. And I'm going to come back to some of these alternatives in the third lecture that I give in this series. And then finally, um, resistance against empire is often centered on breaking away from slavery. So slavery was a crucial imperial institution. Uh, it was part of the definition of empire in, in my view. Uh, most easily seen in its proto-industrial form from the 16th or 17th century on that we've gotten used to thinking about in a European context, but of course present long before then. Slavery has been a constituent part of empire from the very beginning of the imperial uh, experience. So slavery and anti-slavery is going to be crucial to our discussion as well in the next two lectures. And I want to end on this note, Mick, uh, in noticing the, the uh, connections between empire and slavery. And it seems to me that the more pervasive imperial institutions became in the 18th and the early 19th century, the more endemic slavery developed to be as part of the imperial experience. So that tells us something about empire and the relationship between empire and budding capitalism and markets. But it also tells us something about the concept of slavery, the idea that you could keep people enslaved against their will because of the authority of the imperial idea. Uh, that shows empire, I think, uh, in terms of imagination, uh, unfortunately, at its strongest, but also certainly in its latter-day incarnations as their very, at their very weakest when people rise up against this form of inhuman behavior. So I will conclude with that for today and very happy to discuss this further with you, Mick, and with the audience. Well, thank you very much, Arnie. I can't hear the applause because we're virtual, uh, but I can. I, I think I can hear virtual thunderous applause in, in both my ears. I, I, I've got so many questions, but of other people. But I will kick off with two little things, Arnie. You don't need to answer to them. One is about the whole question of what is Britain. Now, I'm one of the very few individuals I know who's managed to live, fortunately, four to five years in Scotland, 20 years in Ireland, 22 to be precise, although it was Belfast, it's part of Ireland, obviously, seven years in Wales before I came back to London. So I've lived the imperial experience. And the thing that I learned most, apart from many, many other things, is to think of Britain itself as a kind of an imperial system in its own right. The English conquered Wales, which my Welsh nationalist friends reminded me of frequently, 
The Scottish nationalists today have their own narrative about that as well. And of course, Ireland has had a very strong narrative of that leading to 30 years of troubles until very recently. So I think in a way, when we're thinking of Britain, we need to get away from England and the notion of Britain itself as imperial and that itself as being the foundation of the British Empire going out. You know, I can't think of the British Empire without the Welsh, without the Scots, without the Irish, even from the South. Uh, from different uh, religious traditions. I think there's a very interesting relationship that Britain has with itself and with empire. Very quickly, you don't need just thought, just a throwaway thought. The no, other that's, thing, a, that, that's a great, uh, if I could just respond to that. And it's one that we're going to, we are going to come back to. I mean, yeah. just like Charlie Mayer said, you know, uh, very many uh, empires start out as nation states, right? Exactly. Um, and and vice versa. I mean, you know, nation states in terms of definitions that we have today uh, come out of imperial practices. So mm -hmm. I think it's important to be aware of that. So, uh, the United Kingdom, as it presents itself today, is, of course, itself a result of conquest. Uh, it, it came out of an English conquest of, of other areas that are very different from England at the point when the conquest actually took place. And what then happened, and this would be particularly interesting for you with your, your background in, in, in all four countries, mm. is that to some extent, the people who were then staffing and manning the empire overseas, what expanded beyond these islands, mm. came out of the third or fourth generation, second generation in some cases, mm. of people who themselves had been conquered. Mm. by the empire the first time around. Mm. And this is not just the case with Britain. This is, this is the case in many imperial experiences. Mm. Mm. So that's something that I think it's important to bear in mind. And the, 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 the delineation between empire and national extension is sometimes mm. very, very tricky to find out. And, mm. and in many cases, of course, you have people who have different roles even in their own lifetime. Think about mm. Ireland where people who have been serving the empire ended up, sometimes ended their lives, as anti-imperial resistance fighters. Mm, mm. Very much so. And certainly that relationship. I, I, lots of friends in South Africa, and I had a very funny friend in South Africa very briefly. He, he himself was a, a Jewish emigre from Poland, very interesting man. Very dead now. And he said, I actually thought South Africa had been conquered by the Scots. Because most of the people he met in, in religious, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, it's kind of this, this way of thinking that it, it British means not English. It means something much wider. And that was a really important part of, of, of empire itself. And I think that's a, made that, I don't know if that makes Britain unique, but it certainly makes it the, the relationship between the domestic and the international, I think. The other thing, very briefly, on simply on the LSE, because it's in your background there, you, you made a passing reference to the LSE as being a kind of, a, a, a bit of a, 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 if you like, a, a, a trainer, a trainer for empire, empire. I, I know it's much more than that, much more complicated. Now, the only problem is, I remember later on a, a very famous uh, bomber Harris, the man who led bomber command in World War Two, Frank Harris, whose statue is just outside the LSE. Quite a controversial statue because of the of bombing of Germany, of civilian bombing in, in, in during World War Two. He later on said to somebody trying to write a history of bomber command, he said, LSE. Terrible place. It, it's full of leftists who destroyed the British Empire. So it's an interesting question. Whatever, whatever the web's intention might have been, 
that those who came through the LSE went out with certain ideas which actually proved to be corrosive of the empire. Not every time, not everyone, not everyone. It's an absolute dialectic, isn't it? No, this is very true. And, and, and this, this shows, you know, why dialectics is a good approach to some of mm. this. So at the great institutions of imperial training here and in France and elsewhere, came some of the staunchest anti-imperialists. Mm. People mm. who had studied empire, because mm. that's what they were asked to do, but then found they didn't like it very much and wanted to overthrow it and, and create a very different set of concepts of, of, of nation or, or freedom or, or cohesion than, than what they had been taught. But sometimes, of course, as you alluded to me, using the very same instruments in exactly. terms of tools of understanding that they had been taught within the imperial centers. So yeah. that dialectic to me is essential. I mean, if we don't grasp that, uh, we don't understand how empires corrode. Um, uh, and, and the problem here, of course, is that the imperial idea that these institutions taught first and foremost was about law and efficiency. Right? And then it doesn't take long for people to discover that those are exactly the kind of issues, law, qua justice, and efficiency as inclusion, uh, that come up against very deeply held convictions in the areas that are being ruled from the center. Right? Mm, that's, so. that's how this problem comes out. I, I think we're even seeing it today with the United States and its global role. But we, we'll yeah. talk about that later. Yeah, great. Thanks, Andy. I just want to throw those two, two questions, general questions, out, A, about Britain, or the Britons, and secondly, about the LSE, because you did mention it. Look, Andy, I've got so many questions here. Mongol heritage in Bulgaria, uh, a Norwegian question. Maybe we should talk about the Vikings as the early imperialist army. Uh, the Norwegian a Empire. Subject, right? A subject close to your heart, no doubt. Denmark, Spanish conquest, China. I'll try and take as many questions as I can, so I apologise now to everybody if I can't get to you. A very, a very interesting question, uh, one that has clearly generated quite a lot of debate online and on Twitter, is about comparing... The American, let's call it empire for the moment, Arnie, if you want a better word, dollar imperialism, the notion of it's the dollar essentially, which is at the heart of the imperial system. And the question being asked there, I don't know from whom, but thank you very much, is that is how do you pr compare something like a 1940s or a 1920s or a 1950s dollar imperialism or empire of the United States, which is at the heart of its economic, of, of the imperial system, if it is called such, with pre-modern empires, are, what's the link between them, if any, other than the, the, using the same word occasionally? Stop, Charlie. So I have no problem, as you know, uh, using the term empire for the United States. I do believe that the United States is, is an empire. Although, as, as my colleague uh, uh, Daniel Immerwar has shown recently, it has been very good at hiding it. He has this wonderful <laughs> book called How book, to yeah. Hide an Empire, which That's I strongly, strongly yeah. recommend. So the United States is an empire, but it is different, you know, just like its predecessors were, were, were different in terms of their setup. Uh, obviously, some forms of economic development have come to be much more significant than they were before. Not all of them. I mean, some of the origins of this, as we will see in my later lectures, um, on the U.S. side actually come out of the reconstitution of empire in the, in the 19th century which directly influenced how U.S. power was, was spread. 
Um, there are many issues that we could look at here. I'll uh, come back to most of those in the final lecture. But two of them that are particularly important to me in sort of saying that the United States is an empire. One is, of course, its network of overseas bases. You know, if you look at that, you get the imperial sense of how the United States works quite clearly. And the second one, going back to the question, is about um, economy and finance. Now, the United States has exactly the same uh, significant but troubled relationship um, to economic and especially financial development as other empires have. I just been been finishing a case, a teaching case that I'm using at the Jackson School here at Yale um, on Philip II and the Habsburg Empire, which shows exactly some of the same challenges with regard to finance that the United States has seen, particularly over the last generation, and which you have written about, Nick, and, and, and others have written about. Uh, it isn't enough just to say that you are the predominant empire. You have to find ways of funding that, of setting it up, and you have to get enough people who are influential in the global economy, particularly in a global capitalist economy, to believe that you're right, to, 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 to provide you with the kind of credit that is necessary to continue to be a great power. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the issues that we're going to return to later on. Yeah, great, Anya. There's a lot more we can discuss, and many of these questions now will be picked up. Uh, later on, there's another question here, which I find, well, you're, back, you're going to get a Chinese question inevitably in this series, but I'm going to ask you one in a moment. Before I do that, Arnie, I want to kind of ask you the question about, and it's, it's a more theoretical question, I suppose, about empires experience success. I, I think I'm understanding the question or reinterpreting it. They then see success and then take an opportunity. And that begins the process of their downfall. There's other questions about what, what corrodes empire, what undermines it. Uh, you know, there's a debate about the fall of the Roman Empire, which you only briefly touched on, whether it was Christianity or whether it was the, the, from within or the barbarians at the gate, whatever. Is, is there a kind of Paul Kennedy argument, I suppose? Is there a sort of sense that empires will grow and grow and grow to the point they'll take every opportunity, they can't stop, start, stop enlarging, and that, in a sense, is their fundamental, that's their Achilles heel to use another Greek analogy, and that will corrode them more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is Paul Kennedy um, and his point about imperial overstretch, isn't mm. it? Uh, yeah. mm. I don't think that's true. I, I, I don't think it's true only territorially. I think we have to be very careful with the idea that all empires expand endlessly if they can in territorial terms. I think this is one of the mistakes in the, in the early materialist interpretations. That's not always the case. Um, but certainly there are other forms of overstretch, not least the one that we just talked about, right, in mm. financial terms, that for, for modern or even early modern empires have become one of the big the big issues, you know, in terms of in terms of weakness. But I think overall this is true. So if you want to find out whether an empire is in the time, you have to look at the basics, as Paul Kennedy taught us, uh, not least through his wonderful lecture series at, at mm. the ideas when he was there as Philip Conan professor some years ago. Which is that, you know, empires cannot go on forever just because they have a predominant position at the moment. You have to look at the structural basis of their power. And if the empires themselves ignore these financial, military, you know, strategic, um, political, ideological, uh, you know, then decline sets in rather quickly. Now, uh, and I think Paul would agree with me on this. There are, of course, such a thing, as I think we might be observing at the moment, as a non-linear kind of decline, 
right? I think you saw that with the British Empire as well. I think you saw it with the Romans. I think you saw it with the Qing Empire in China. There are ups and downs, right? So those who believe, and some of these tend to be materialists, that empires start to decline, and then there is a straight way down, mm. almost always wrong, right? Mm. Uh, but that doesn't invalidate Paul Kennedy's point about mm. looking at the basics. You know, that's, of course, what you should do. I mean, that's, that's uh, how Karl Marx came to some of the most crucial insights that he had mm. uh, about empire and about politics in general, was looking at those basics. Uh, so we have to expand them beyond the material factors, but we still have to look at the basics. And I think a good point too: uh, avoid determinism, because all empires look they, like they had to fall after they've fallen. And we've had all that, have we not, about the Soviet Union? It had to happen. Uh, well, no, I don't think it did. You know, I mean, even the Ottoman Empire. My old history teacher in the 1960s said to me, "It was always declining, but somehow or another." It, it hung around for 400 years until the First World War. Exactly. So that's absolutely right. One's got to be a bit careful about assuming that there's a kind of determination about decline. It always follows the same kind of pattern, even though Paul Kennedy's book, like you, I agree with. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting twist question. I like this one, Arnie, very much. It comes from a, a Spanish friend, Hector Hernandez Garcia de Leon. I hope I pronounced that correctly. He said, do you not think the Anglo-Saxons and the British particularly Use the black legend of the Spanish conquest uh, and the Anglo-Saxons here, of course, including the Americans, I think, particularly in the 19th. But well before that, going right back to the 15th and 16th century. I mean, the British love Queen Elizabeth I for a number of reasons. But one, because we saw Cape Blanchett on the back of the White Horse fighting off totalitarian Catholic Spain in a freedom struggle almost. So there's an interesting question. Thank you very much, Hector. Over to you, Arnie. No, that, that is a good question. I mean, and this is what empires usually do, I would say, is that they want to distinguish themselves in, in, in terms of actions, deeds, ideas from, from others. Um, uh, in a way, you could say that that's what the Spanish Empire, what the Habsburg Empire did at its origin with regard to others as well. I mean, Philip II, who I was just writing about, of course, believed that in fighting against England, he was fighting against a terrorist conspiracy against, you know, true religion that, that had been set up. He wasn't entirely wrong about that, by the way. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, but I do think um, the question's implication is correct in the sense that there are some concepts and ideas, condemnations of others, that become particularly prevalent and predominant over time. And I, I, I think the idea that there is something fundamentally wrong from the very origin with people of Iberian origin taking over what was the richest, most significant part of the New World, rather than Anglo-Saxons, is something that hasn't gone away today. I think it's something that I think you find um, in, in US policy uh, uh, towards uh, the Caribbean, towards um, uh, Central and, 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 and South America. Um, and I think it will remain for a, for a very, very long time. I mean, this idea of imperial justification is very significant. There is another element to this, if I may mention it. It takes mm. us away from Spain and, and Iberia. And that's one that you sometimes see developed in China today, that one of the fundamental injustices of the international system as it ex exists today 
is that these tiny insignificant islands in on, on, on the western peninsula of the Eurasian continent, mm. the way the many Chinese could see Europe, took over very large parts of the world and settled it with their own people. You know, that's a fundamental injustice. It's easy to see that line of argument, right? Um, injustices in the past would have an impact in terms of how one sees the present. Mm. Well, part of the British Empire was the export of its own people, not just the export of capital. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, you know, there's an all South Africa, large, large parts of East Africa. Thanks for that, Arnie. I got a more theoretical question from your old friend, Nick Kitchen. Uh, I, I hope I'm translating this correctly, Nick. Um, about It's about postmodernism. But I suppose distilling the question, it is really about, it's not really about territorial empire. It's more about capitalism as, a, as an economic system, as a hegemonic structure. Maybe in the modern world, I'm, tra I'm translating Nick's words, I hope correctly, Nick, that it's really, capitalism doesn't need territory. That's why I'm going to put it really. Hart and Negri, if you remember, wrote a book years ago called Empire. And it had nothing about empires, but it had everything about the market. And maybe that's also part of the argument as well. So the, in the modern market world, empires are a thing of the past, really, if we mean by territory. First of all, it's great to hear from Nick again. We, he was an integral part of setting up LSE Ideas with us. Of course, as, as well so many others who might be listening in today, not least in my, my old uh, uh, homes in the International History Department at LSE. And I can see there are some friends from there who are on as well. Um, I miss you, miss you all guys. Uh, the, the link, I think, so the, 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 the Negri Hart argument, uh, the way I understand it, is sort of in part correct. I mean, the, 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 the part of it that's really significant, um, as Nick pointed out in this question, is that empire over time has become and is becoming less and less territory. I mean, that's something that started quite some time ago and we are seeing more of today. I think... Uh, with the most recent uh, reincarnations of global capitalism and global global markets, not least through the expansion of financial capital, you know we are looking at new systems of predominance and control um, that will probably, in my view at least, become even stronger over the next couple of decades. The problem with the argument is that one has to be very careful with believing that this removes some of the power that's integral to territorial empire. I, I, I don't think, by the way, that uh, Negri and Hawke really argue that, but, but that's how it's often seen. Mm. That's still there, very significant. Military power still matters with regard to this the extension of, of military power that can even, in some cases, at least short-term, overcome financial advantages. So hardware and position logistics matter. Uh, the, 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 the second one, and this is the reason why I'm so preoccupied with the study of capitalism for the understanding of empire, is that empire and capitalism has been working together for a very, very long time, right? Mm. So some of the imperial structures that are there that have, in a way, become part of capitalism as we understand it are you know, they come out of an imperial experience deep into the 19th and in some cases 18th century. Some of them do not make sense. This is Gramsci's point, right? <laughs> they do not make sense at all if you think about this in, in purely economic terms. 
but they come out of uh, capitalism as an ideology that is focused in on forms of imperial dominance. So that's the other thing that we need to need to watch for, that we do not just become preoccupied with the logic that is built into capitalism as a system in itself, but also look at its ideological aspects. I think that also would probably go back to the Robinson and Gallagher debate about empire and the economic need for it. I mean, I remember that debate in the 60s and 70s. It, it struck me as a kind of pointless debate because it didn't seem to me important to emphasize whether it was economic or, or strategic. It, it was a connected, it was in the end a connected system. Not every single bit of land that the British or the French grabbed in Africa in the late 19th century had to be for economic reasons. It was more often than not to stop somebody else grabbing it. But all roads led through the Suez Canal and ultimately to India and the rest of the empire, which was important for, for Britain economically. But, what if- but, but on that, Mick, I mean, I, yeah. I think this is an important point in a way. Yeah. So, so the, the era, the, 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 the wrong definition that I see as even more problematic here mm. are those who believe, particularly in the United States, that capitalism somehow is against empire. Right. That you, yeah. you cannot be fully a practicing mm. member of a dynamic capitalist market-oriented society if you still function within an imperial setting, which I think is blatantly untrue. I mean, it's been untrue in the past. It is, it is untrue today. And, and one of the biggest problems, I think, for taking U.S. policy, particularly on the progressive side forward with regard to the consequences of U.S. empire, is the inability to look at capitalism and, and empires being integrated? Yeah, I'm going to move. I'm going to move and focus eastwards, Arnie, because you, you you drew that distinction between, if I understood you correctly, between a Western or a Chinese conception. Uh, could you explore that a bit more, particularly in the light of the current debate about China, which, as you know, says, well, it's all very well for the Chinese to say they're not like us, but basically they're behaving like us. Everything they're doing in Africa is, well, it's a bit like us. Um, what they're doing on the Belt and Road Initiative, well, they don't call it empire because they don't want to and they wouldn't want to for reasons of legitimacy, but it adds up to the same to the same thing. So China is also engaging in empire denial as much as many Western countries and the United States is. What do you say to that? Yeah, I would say, yes, they do. Um I mean, there are differences, as I pointed out earlier on, and we can we can discuss, we probably ought to discuss how significant those differences are in terms of the deeper imperial um, experience. But we have to recognize, I think, whether we are Chinese or non-Chinese, that China today, the People's Republic of China, is the last great empire standing. You know, all the all the others are gone uh, in various forms. Even even the Russian Empire is a very different um it has a very different form than what it had at the height of, of continental empires. China, with some relatively few exceptions um, at its borders, is, is, the, is the last one standing. So I sometimes say that today's China is an empire that tries to behave as if it were a nation state. And there are enormous contradictions built into that, not, not least uh, in minority areas, as we have seen recently, but also in terms of self-perception. Uh, in terms of ideas about predominance, um, ideas about status uh, in the Eastern Asian region, but also also further afield. So, Mm-mm. 
uh, yeah, I think, hello. Uh, aggression in various forms. Um, but it is important to be aware of, of where China comes from uh, mm. with regard to these kinds of issues and what the challenges are for bringing China more in line with, with how its government could serve its people. Yeah, we lost you for a bit there, Arnie, but I think the, the overall answer, I think, was, in, es in essence, China is engaged in something which looks like, sounds like, a duck, and therefore why not call it a duck? <laughs> it, it has all the That's a pretty good summing up, mate. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. I'm, I'm good with cliches, Arnie, as, as you know. I've got some really fantastic questions, actually. They're so good. I want to answer them myself, but I'm not the speaker, as you know. Something, too, about the Mughal Empire. I'm glad we moved on to that one because we want to move away just from the notion of the Atlantic system. I think it's quite important to do so uh, about other kinds of empires, the Mughal Empire. And, of course, we haven't got a question on it, but also the Islamic Empire. But what about the huge impact of the Mughal Empire on and the legacies of that as well? Because that's been talked about a lot, not only what creates empires, but the legacies of it as well. Could you say yeah. something about that, Arnie, if you... If you yeah, South Asia is particularly interesting with regard to this because you get, um, over a long period of time, uh, a British empire that is superimposed in many ways of, on a Mughal empire, of which it takes over many of the institutions and many of the forms of rule, even some of the legitimacy-oriented issues that were there when the Mughals were fully in charge. And... This is something that I think we should explore further in a comparative sense, because we tend to think of this as being um, somehow, if not strange, at least exceptional. So in come the British, first through the, through the company and then to direct British institutions and take over practices and ideas that in some, time, in, in, in some ways are deeply Indian, right? deeply connected to the formal rule that's gone before. But that is probably not all that atypical. Um, look at the Qing Empire in China with regard to the Ming and its, its predecessors, which happened you know, roughly at the same time, at least as the starting point, and developed very much in the same, in the same manner. Uh, so I do think that those are important comparative issues to be aware of. The, the biggest example because it's not in a way territorial with regard to this kind of thinking, is looking at the relatively short-lived Japanese empire and the degree to which it patterned itself on the British empire, first and yeah. foremost, mm -hmm. in terms of how it set up its manner of expanding and its manners of, of, of imperial control. So I do think this is important, but there is another aspect to this question, of course, and that is the need, as you said, Mick, not to forget uh, the empires that have been very significant over time, but are no longer around. I mean, going from the Austro-Hungarians to the Ottomans to the Mughals, mm. um, you know, a, a number of, of very significant African empires. Um, I do think it's very important, not just as an historian, but someone with an interest in, in current events to, to take those into consideration. They might be gone in institutional terms and as structures in international uh, politics. But many of the inherent inheritances that came out of those empires are, are still around. Um, you know, I was supposed to have spent, I still hope it might happen, but I'm not sure it will, next month in, in or part of next month in Vienna. Uh, you, you know, if you look at significant parts of, of Europe, 
way outside of, of Austria and Hungary. Of course, you know, what came out of the Austrian Hungarian Empire is still of, of very great significance. So we need to take that into consideration. Yeah, the, the whole question of the legacies, Arnie, I don't know if you, I, I, don't, I don't want to get into two way, but uh, uh, Samir Puri over at King's College has just written a very interesting book, uh, The Great Imperial Hangover, which actually looks, it's very good, looking at legacies, not, not just causes of why it happened, but the legacies of it. And one legacy we could explore on it, and we haven't talked about this so far, is the last empire, if you like, which was, I suppose, the Soviet Union, if you want to call it an empire. Uh, some do, some don't. Um, where does that fit into your, if you've got a model on your, your, your general thesis about empires? That's a, that, that's a really good question. I mean, just one point on the on the literature first. So I'm one of the real blessings in working in this field, uh, particularly yeah. as a relative newcomer to it, is the explosion in insightful, critical, uh, historical and uh, social science treatments uh, of empire that have appeared over the last few years. So I'm going to review some of these in 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 the continuation over the next few lectures yeah. on the Soviet Union. I mean, as we know, it was a direct successor state to the to the Russian Empire. It continued to practice in many ways um, as an empire. Though it was based, as I point out in an earlier book that you referred to, um, on different ideas in terms of the justification of control. So I, I referred to it in the, in the global Cold War as uh, the empire of justice. And by that, of course, I didn't mean justice in a direct sense, I mean, in, in terms of how the state treated people. We know that they sometimes were treated uh, abysmally. But the important thing was the concept of social justice that was included in the Soviet experience that had tremendous uh, significance for how the Soviet Union was set up and how it was understood uh, internationally. But it was no less an empire for that. Right. It continued to practice empire domestically within the republics, but also internationally in terms of its significance, very much in ways that came out of its previous uh, pre-Soviet imperial uh, experience. So I think it's important to take that uh, into consideration. I, I think, particularly if we think about comparison with China, where I see some parallels, but also some differences, as I pointed out in a recent, in a recent piece that I hope we will discuss in in other uh, contexts at the LSE while I'm, while I'm here. Um, you know, China and the Soviet Union, in terms of their Marxist-Leninist origins, have much in common. But it's the imperial experience of the two states that in many ways differ, and in many ways are still present in terms of their foreign policies and domestic policies today. And also a classic case of legacies. Absolutely. Think of Putin without the, the Soviet empire. Think of what's happening in Ukraine today without the empire. Indeed. When you go to Central Europe, Arnie, you, meant, you mentioned the Austro-Hungarian empire, uh, something I've been looking at quite closely, actually, through, through the prism of one of the treaties in 1920, the Trianon Treaty, of course, de de determining the, the uh, hunger, you know, shrinkage, to say the least. And the legacy of that today, we've recently visited Romania, and there again, you still see those kinds of legacies. And, you know, Polish history, of course, is full about legacies of empire. Ali, I think we've come very close. We're now coming close to half past five. I think we said an hour and a half. To, we can keep going if you want to go for a bit longer. 
Do I hear Paul's to go? I think we want to go on a bit longer. Are, are you? Are, are you? I'm up? happy. I'm happy going on a bit longer. Yeah. All right then. That's that. That's wonderful. No. Okay. I've got to get a lot more questions in here. Now, here's one for you. The United States. Okay. I'm going to bring you into the United. I know you're going to deal with it later on. Is it a model of decline today? Is this what we're seeing? It's following a pattern that it denied could ever happen. Decline. You know, I think to some extent that's right. I mean, I think relative decline for sure. Uh, as you know, that decline has been ongoing for quite some time. I mean, the United States uh, had its peak in terms of its international significance quite quite some time ago. But that's because others have been catching up with the United States. It's not necessarily because the United States itself is in, is in terminal decline, which I don't believe it is. So, mm. you know, I think the, uh, the overall direction that we're seeing, and as you said, I'll explore this further in the fourth lecture, yeah. is a movement towards a more, more multipolar world. I mean, the United States is going to remain for a very long time the strongest pole within that multipolar uh, set of states. But, you know, it's never going to come back to the position that it had uh, before. Neither, by the way, is China going to overtake that position, in my view, at least not anytime soon. Mm. So what we're looking at is not so much U.S. Uh, uh, decline in a, in a more sort of specific yeah. decline and collapse sense as moving from one kind of international system to another. In, in a way, Arne, that brings you to a, a kind of historical analogy. And I, I know historians should never use analogies, but I'm going to at least put one in. But in. In a way, where we live in, in our part of the world for the moment, you know, we, we kind of, it's the British Empire, which has been really central to much of the debate. Uh, you know, its success in the 19th century, Africa, the whole role of slavery, of course, going back earlier. Uh, Germany and Japan suffering in the late 19th, early part of the 20th from British Empire envy. They wanted to be like the British, etc. Even America for a period under Theodore Roosevelt looked, you know, quite admiringly. At, at, at the British Empire, particularly Theodore Roosevelt, just to prove there's a pro-imperial tradition in America, not just an imperial one. Now, if that is the case, do you think we talk too much about the British Empire in terms of our own narrative? It, it, does it not over-occupy us? Whereas I think we'd be better placed to be kind of looking at wider empires, the empires within Africa, the empires preceding the Colombian conquest. What do you think? So I think the, the British Empire was, as you know, of, of quite unique significance for a very long period of time. It was mm -hmm. a predominant empire in a, in a global setting. So, no, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, I, I think if you think about it within the UK, the trouble has been that one hasn't really looked very closely at empire at all since the mm -hmm. empire ended. It's quite remarkable uh, how little focus has been on it. I mean, some of it, I think quite clearly, comes out uh, of, of the shock that it was for many people in the UK when empire came to an end. So therefore, better not uh, delve into the reasons of why it collapsed or the practices that it carried out when it was at its peak. But that's, a, that's not a very smart approach to, to one's own history. And I've, I think Britain has a lot of catching up to do with regard to this. And you're seeing that now through um, discussions about empire, through um, movements, not least among students that are getting, getting started, um, you know, toppling roads, toppling statues of, of, of enslavers in different parts of the UK. You know, I think some of that debate 
that these actions uh, give rise to are incredibly important for the UK. Because if this country doesn't deal seriously, particularly in these Brexit times, with its past, what has constituted Britain uh, in the past, then I think it will be much harder to come to terms with some of the contradictions and, and, and problems that are there at present. So, no, I don't agree with that. I think, you know, of course, we should look at it comparatively, as we're trying to do in this lecture series. But Britain needs more attention to empire, not less. Is, is this the way it's taught in schools, largely, Arnie, do you think? Rather, I mean, as you say, I mean, you look around the bookshelves, lots of really good books, and certainly not apologias. Yes. But quite the opposite, if anything. I think you know, the new wave of historiography, you know, has been more critical than it has been, uh, you know, endorsing of an empire. It's very difficult now to find a book that's going to endorse, and that's, that's to the good. But is this not going down into the schools, into the curriculum, do you think? Or, or what? Not yet, is my impression. Now, now no. as you know, it's sometimes since I lived in the UK and, and no. good things might have happened <laughs> since I was there, possibly even because I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the school textbooks that I looked at, you know, which might be as much as a decade ago now, uh, were terrible with regard to the British Empire, yeah. um, uh, quite plainly. I mean, not not because they were uncritical. I mean, some people are saying, well, you know, there's been celebration of empire in the UK. Some of that is true, but not necessarily in textbooks. The problem was the ignoring of it. The problem was not taking it seriously. Um, and, of course, that goes along with uh, how history, uh, teaching and learning has been organized in the UK with, with, with a focus on very limited uh, batches of, of historical issues that are being discussed, rather getting an overview of, of the big themes and the big developments in history, uh, which I, I find being exactly the wrong way of, of, of teaching history. I mean, if you come from you know my kind of background where you do not get that kind of knowledge about history as, as part of your birthright, and you mm. have to learn it in school, you know, I know if I hadn't had teachers who were willing to tell world history, uh, as well as national history, uh, to tell it as a chronological whole, you know, understanding the big movements that are there, uh, I certainly wouldn't have developed into an historian as an adult. Mm. Um, among many mistakes that I, I, I made, you know, I, I ended up doing this because I just found it fascinating. Uh, and that's how you hook people on, on the significance mm. of history, not by, by teaching them year in and year out how terrible a man is. Yeah, One interesting, you know, I lived in Ireland for a long time and have what I suppose would be called an Irish heritage, uh, with a name like Mick. Uh, <laughs> so if you live in Ireland, as I did for many years, and read a lot of Irish history, which I did, one of the things that actually strikes you this is my question. It doesn't come up with any of the questions. There. One thing that strikes you is that two different traditions in Ireland have two entirely different views of empire. To put it r- roughly and crudely, Catholic nationalist, Republican histories are anti-imperialist and see very little that was good in, in the British rule in Ireland from Drogheda through the Great Famine and beyond uh, until the 1916 uprising. And there, of course, is a unionist uh, plantation tradition which sees empire as freedom, Protestant liberties, King William, the greatest of all British and Irish kings, Battle of the Boy. And I think the problem, it's not the question of teaching empire. You're going to get fights about empire and debates about empire. And I think that's also what we're going to see 
now. And that, to me, is a good thing. Well, I, I agree with that, though, as you know, in Ireland, it can be a little bit too much of a good thing sometimes <laughs> uh, when you think about this in a broader, in a broader context. No, mm. I think, I mean, so memorialization of, of empires, so exactly. significant with regard to, to Ireland, is one of the things that we really need to discuss. I mean, the idea of just insisting on, you know, my ancestors are more valuable than your ancestors that therefore should be memorialized more is, of course, exactly the wrong way of dealing with this. And again, I think this starts in schools, as has indeed been proven in Ireland, right? It starts with getting an understanding of the past, not in order to legitimize anything that's happened in the past, but trying to critically delve into what the issues were, what was at stake, what were the positions taken by relative uh, power holders, you know, with regard to this. But also teaching, and this is particularly important, I think, in an Irish con context, and this is perhaps my Norwegian background that comes through, you know, teaching about the tremendous violence that came out of the imperial experience. I mean, you know, if if one if one doesn't do that, um, and 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 rather try to say, you know, there were there were mistakes made on on both sides, you don't get any understanding of how the past actually worked. So, yeah, I think that those are challenge, as you know better than me, make those, those are challenging um, issues, but they need to be faced. Yeah, again, just sticking on the Irish question, because quite a few people have come up and said. Love the Irish. Well, everybody loves the Irish, and I'm glad they do. You know, we, we, we there was set up a thing called Education for Mutual Understanding in the North, which uh, my, my wife Fiona was involved in very much through integrated schools. And came, not, not that she came away, but I think a lot of people came away saying it's education for mutual misunderstanding because you had two entirely different narratives. And I think it's very interesting. And I draw the parallel now with the debate going on about empire today, arising out of Black Lives Matter and all the rest. That's very important. But the question is, we're going to get a, are we going to get a debate and a dialogue, or are we going to get two people sh shouting at each other? I don't know. What do you? That, that's a good. That's a good point to end on, actually, Mick, because yeah. I, I do think there are tremendous challenges with mm. looking uh, at history, and I, I'm not saying impartially because I don't think we can look impartially. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the history is too much connected to who we are today, how we live our lives, how we understand the world today. So impartiality, objectivity, is not the issue. Well, what is the issue is trying to look at how history has been viewed from different angles, yeah. not just how historians have viewed it and people like us who write about it, sure. but how people in real time, you know, actually view these kinds of things. And that's, mm. I think, where the discrepancy has been in imperial history. We are given too much voice to empires of different kinds and too little voice to those who have been central to various forms of anti-imperial resistance. Understanding in many ways that in an historical sense, both of these are contiguous. They live at the same time. They feed off the same ideas. They compete over, over the concept uh, inherent in some of these ideas and, and directions. I mean, ideas such as, as freedom or order um, or, or economy or, or progress, right? So that's, I think, where where we should where we should concentrate, uh, and that's what I, I hope that we will contribute to through through these lectures. Ali, I think that is a fantastic start to what I know is going to be a fantastic series. I don't know if you're tired, uh, but I'm beginning to feel tired <laughs> uh, because it's been such a wonderful, engaging, and stimulating discussion. I'd like to thank the LSE of the LSE events for all the hard work they've done. I'd obviously like to thank LSE Ideas, where it all began, 
uh, many, many years ago with you and I as the founding directors. I won't call us the founding fathers. I don't like that term. We're the founding directors. I'd like to thank all of the people who have attended this uh, wonderful session, asked some terrific questions. I do apologize. I didn't bring everybody in, but I tried to bring as many voices and as many people in as possible. Arnie, thank you for kicking off our first Engelsberg lecture with such bravura, uh, with such knowledge, and with such great confidence of dealing in ways that very few people could across time and space with what I think is a great topic. And the more we get more school teachers and schools to insert it into their curriculum, rather than having Hitler one, Tudors two, can you answer three questions on an A-level paper? I understand the pressure on students and at schools because they want to get those A-level, but I think there has to be a major reform of where we are going with the teaching of it within the schools itself. It's such an important part of, of, of creating citizenship as, as much as historical knowledge. And the two, of course, inevitably go together. So I'm going to say farewell to you, Arnie. Thank you again. Farewell Thank to you. ideas. Not forever, of course. Thank you very much for everybody attending. And could you fill in the forms just to give a feedback on, on this wonderful session? I've just given you a prompt. It's a wonderful session. Anyway, thank you very much, everybody. Good evening. Good night. Good afternoon. Bye.